This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. I'm Jody Vance in for Simi today and we have our hot question of the day. The provincial government has been uh, commissioned or has commissioned a study that is of a rapid transit, high volume transit link across Burrard Inlet, giving some hope for relief to those who live on the North Shore. We've had a lot of conversations about various massive expenditure infrastructure plans um, and feasibility studies and and discussions and meetings and conversations and politics and politics and politics on a number of projects, right? So North Shore Rapid Transit is one of those. Uh, Massey Tunnel Replacement comes to mind this week. There's been a lot on that. We've talked Broadway, Subway Line, a ton over the last couple of years. And then, of course, the Surrey-Langley Skytrain project that was to be LRT, then it's... Uh, there's so much to discuss here that it leads to the question, which of these is the most important transit priority for you? Uh, head to Twitter at Jody Vance and take our poll. We've already got almost 300 votes on this. And right now people are saying the Massey replacement is the highest at 41%. So we will keep on this throughout the day. And you can call in our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ, 604-331-2899. So which is the most important transit priority for you? Is it the North Shore? Is it the Massey replacement? Is it the Broadway subway line? Or is it Surrey-Langley SkyTrain? People are deciding not to go out, deciding not to participate in recreational activities or even delaying some necessary trips just simply because of the traffic constraints on the North Shore right now. See what we did there? That was North Vancouver District Mayor Mike Little with a little help from Jimi Hendrix, of course. The mayor excited with the fact that the provincial government has commissioned a study of a rapid transit link across Burrard Inlet. As you heard, the mayor says traffic congestion on the North Shore right now is a nightmare. So this can't come quickly enough. And you just heard our traffic, AM730 traffic, backups both ways on the Lionsgate Bridge and serious congestion, no accidents, but serious congestion on the ironworkers. Anybody who goes to and from the North Shore knows that this is uh, uh, an ever-growing issue. We are thrilled to have Bowen Ma with us, the NDP MLA for North Vancouver Lonsdale, to talk about transit to and from the North Shore. Bowen, thanks for being with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So the news of this, when it came down, the feasibility study is going into play. A contractor has been hired to look at what the possibilities are. Give us your reaction to that first. Well, it doesn't take an expert to tell you that people are frustrated yeah. with their transportation options getting on, off, and around the North Shore. So this is an extremely exciting study for us. Uh, the, this feasibility study will actually be the first comprehensive feasibility study into a rapid transit connection to the North Shore ever. And it will be the first step to us making the case for that connection. Any of us who have lived on the North Shore uh, often think that it's an oxymoron to think rapid transit <laughs> to and from the North Shore. Like the sea bus, literally a slow boat to North Van, um, it, it, and usable, certainly. But w what are some of the options that you believe are being considered here as all of us start to noodle? Where does it go? It, can it be a tunnel? Is it going to be somehow attached to the Ironworkers Memorial Bridge? Is it? Wh what do you think might come of this? 
Well, first off, let me give a, a shout-out to the C-Bus, because that's a 12-minute <laughs> ride from True. downtown Vancouver to Lonsdale Key. It's pretty tough to beat in a car. Um, but having said that, the feasibility study, it is a technical feasibility study, which means that the consultants will be taking a look and finding or trying to figure out what is actually possible. So it could be a tunnel. It could be a, um, a rail connection. It could be various technologies. I mean, we often think of rapid transit as SkyTrain, but SkyTrain is actually a, one specific technology of rapid transit. There are, it could be a gondola. Um, they're also even considering potentially using the waterways more um, as a way to cross the Burrard Inlet in a faster way. Like uh, a fast ferry. <laughs> well, maybe a, a passenger ferry that moves very quickly. I go. think that everything is on the table at this point. Now, Bowen, we've heard people talk about the idea of a tunnel, um, and many people going, we could just co- connect Maine and Lonsdale. It would be perfect. But then comes into play the depth of Burrard Inlet. What do we know about that from a technical standpoint? Well, that's exactly one of the challenges. Now, the Integrated North Shore Transportation Planning Project, which I started in 2018, was actually the comprehensive, it was a it was a study that brought all the municipalities, the provincial government, the federal government, and TransLink together to come up with one unified plan for transportation on the North Shore. And one of its recommendations was to take a look at rapid transit. Now, it recommended that if we connected Lonsdale Key to downtown Vancouver, that would actually be the most promising connection from a rapid transit perspective. However, that also happens to be the deepest, widest part of the Burrard Inlet um, and likely the most expensive. So part of this technical feasibility study will is, uh, or the job of this study is to take a look at um, what's physically possible, and then layer on top of it what makes sense from an economic perspective, what makes sense from a population growth perspective, and what makes sense from a cost perspective as well. Because we know that um, if we're going to be spending potentially or investing billions of dollars into a rapid transit connection, it needs to be worthwhile for commuters and taxpayers long term. And there are the communities that would be impacted depending on the feasibility of this. Do you see, you know, so many people are absolutely all for increasing rapid transit to and from the North Shore, but do you see some pushback from people in communities saying, you know what, we like it sleepy, we like it difficult for people to get through our neighborhoods? You know, it's uh, interesting that you bring that up. A few days ago, a few days ago, we actually took another look at what was happening on the North Shore in terms of factors like job growth and population growth. And what we found is between 2011 and 2016, the North Shore grew by about 9,200 jobs, wow. but, but only by about 2,700 working-age people. So you've got to wonder where are those extra 6,500 people who are filling jobs on the North Shore coming from? And a lot of them are coming from off of the North Shore. Yeah, coming across the Iron Workers Memorial Bridge. I b- grew up in uh, just just shy of Deep Cove, Berkeley Road and Mount Seymour Parkway. And I remember going across either bridge and, and yeah, you know, you'd get your ebb and flow during high traffic times, peak times, rush hour and what have you, or if there was a, a stall or an accident. But more and more, particularly on the iron workers, because you almost expect it on the Lions Gate with the, with the flipping of the lanes, but the Iron Workers Memorial Bridge can at any time of day feel like rush hour right now. 
That's right. And that's part of the reason why people are getting really frustrated. But what's also interesting and what's important to note as well is that housing affordability is a big part of this. Mm-hmm. So that so people who work on the North Shore can't afford to live on the North Shore, and so they cross the bridge in order to get there. And that's why our government's work, not only on transportation challenges or transportation infrastructure, but also housing affordability is so important. We're with Bowen Ma, the NDP MLA for North Vancouver Lonsdale. We are hearing a lot about the NDP government uh, provincially talking about sort of tightening up the purse strings a bit, um, leading many to to sort of assume that putting this feasibility study um, is sort of that sparkly thing that looks like relief in, on a, on a short, shorter-term plan, but this could be decades out, right? So all uh, rapid transit projects take uh, several years to come into fruition. We won't be able... It, just because we have this study and it's coming out next year doesn't mean that we're going to be breaking ground on it by the end of 2020. Right. Um, but... If the North Shore is serious about taking a look at rapid transit as a potential solution, we've got to get our ducks in the line today. And having this study really will help us make the case for a, fees- uh, for a rapid transit line up to the North Shore. So all of this information is going to be fed into Transport 2050, which is TransLink's next regional transportation strategy. And that's where a lot of the real magic will happen over the long term. And you've got to start somewhere, right? Absolutely. I think we've waited far too long to even be taking a look at this as an option. And I'm really glad that the BC government has come on board on this today. Well, we appreciate you taking some time to chat with us about it, Bowen. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much. That is Bowen Ma, the uh, NDP MLA for North Vancouver Lonsdale. And a great follow on Twitter, by the way. Uh, Very passionate about transit and moving people in an environmentally conscious way. Jody Vanson for Simi Sarah. And you know, it was two years ago, October 1st, 2017, when that horrific mass shooting took place in Las Vegas at the Route 91 Harvest Music Festival outside of the Mandalay Bay Hotel. And uh, many of us remember exactly where we were when we heard the news of that shooting. Uh, 58 people perished, four Canadians. Over 500 people were injured in that. And while the owner of Mandalay Bay, where America's deadliest shooting um, took place, they're, they're settling hundreds of lawsuits. Not all the victims are being paid out, but it's between 735 and $800 million in the civil class action lawsuit. Uh, one of the survivors is a Vancouver Island woman who joins us now on the line. Bree Jacobson is with us, lives on the island, as I said, and did not take part in the legal action after this mass shooting in Vegas in 2017. Bree, thank you for being with us. No, thank you for having me. I, I, I'm hesitant and reticent to uh, have you relive what must have just been an, an unimaginable horror. However, you have become somewhat of an activist and a, and a voice for um, a movement to, to try and stem the flood of this epidemic of mass shootings. Yeah, um... It's a really wild thing to go through. Um, as a Canadian, we're not used to gun violence. We see it on television, whether you know you turn on the TV and there happens to be a violent movie going on, or unfortunately, if we turn on American news and it seems to be that they're shooting each other left, right, and center. But in, I mean, in Canada, we don't think about these things. So when we went down to the U.S. Uh, to the Route 91 festival in Las Vegas, we thought it was going to be like every other year that we had been down and it turned out that it was very much so not. 
Can you give us an idea of what the experience was like without, again, asking you to necessarily relive the minutiae, but just just so our listener can can understand what you've been through? Absolutely. Um, Well, first, a lot of therapy allows me to be able to talk about these things. Um, But so I went with my mother, my aunt, and my best friend, Jessica, and my mom and my aunt were back at the bleachers because that's where they hung out every night. And Jessica and I, each and every night, evening, we had gone down into the pit to get, try and get as close as we could to get up to the stage. And we had had a really long couple nights for the last, the Friday and the Saturday. So originally on the Sunday, we were going to hang out near the back of the crowd. Um, and then for whatever reason, the sea of people just kept parting and we kept moving closer and closer to the stage and you know, it felt like that was just where we were supposed to be that night. And we had been struggling throughout because neither one of us are particularly tall. And everybody around us was much taller than we were. Um, it felt like we were in a wall of people, if you will, or a sea of people. And then Jason Aldean uh, was in the middle of his set. And we heard um, some pops. And at the time, I remember looking over at Jessica and she just said, oh, it's just firecrackers. And I, had, I remember thinking and saying out loud, what idiot brings firecrackers into a festival? Um, again, because in Canada, we don't have to worry about these things. So our first thought was, you know, someone's just playing a practical joke or something. And then all of a sudden, the next round of pops came through and they were a little faster. And we, the guy standing directly in front of us that we had been standing on our toes trying to see around, um, he fell like a, a dancer or, or a boxer had just been, you know, KO'd. And he just tumbled like a tree. And, you know, at the time, I remember my brain processed it as, oh, the loud sounds must have just freaked him out and he's just passed out. And then other people around us started falling as well. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden we realized that he wasn't breathing. So we tried to um, start CPR and, and wasn't really aware of what was going on until all of a sudden I looked down um, at my feet and there was a perfect ring of blood around his head. And it was at that moment that I kind of realized that, oh no, this is, this is not firecrackers and we're being shot at. And we were stuck um, around the bodies that had fallen and, and the rest of the crowd because we were 10 feet up from stage on the center of the right, which was the closer side to the Mandalay Bay. Um, and of course, at the time, we didn't know where the gunshots were coming from. And we were stuck there for eight and a half minutes out of the 10 minutes of shooting. Wow. So, I mean, at the time, we're not, you don't really know where it's coming from. We, we could roughly hear the sounds of where it was going. And I could, my brain consciously or subconsciously recognized that bodies were falling in different directions, but they were falling, they weren't falling towards the Mandalay Bay. And I guess I recognized that that meant that shooting couldn't be coming from that direction or something. So eventually we were able to turn and run, but um, I took a little bit of shrapnel in the leg and unfortunately I saw other people get shot while we were trying to flee and, and wasn't able to help. And and we managed to get out um, and we hid in the Tropicana for a little bit and it was just, it was one of those nights where you would you, you could never ever dream of something like this happening you could never you could never think of this as being a normal thing because we don't ever hear what it's actually like to go through it we always hear 
um, what it's like to be SWAT because that's what the TV shows always they always show us the the heroes that come through, but they don't ever show you just you know the regular people that get affected by it because that's not the interesting story. But what I learned that night was you know some of the really interesting stuff that happens is not the glamorous you know TV cinematic showing that we all know and have seen to add on and apply to you know horrors as such. Now, we're with Bree Jacobson, a Vancouver Island resident who survived the Las Vegas mass shooting. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, I understand, I'm looking at your Instagram, um, you actually uh, have said publicly that you forgive Stephen Paddock, the uh, man who opened, fired, and killed 58, injuring 500. Yeah, that was like, that was the day after the shooting, and I've kind of decided um, throughout my writing and everything else like that, that I I wouldn't refer to him as, as his name. Mm. Um, that was That's one thing within the survivor community. And, like, this is something that we forget because in news, we always have to have our facts and, and you know, people are people. Um, but I, I just refer to him as um, the perpetrator. Okay. Um, because that's, for me, that is the only value that he holds to my life. And I would like to think that if I had have met him before um, and if he had have met me, that he wouldn't have tried to murder me. But there was also in a crowd of, you know, 22,000 people. And, and from that perspective, I don't think it was a personal attack. And for whatever reason why he did it, to, to me personally, um, it was irrelevant. It, didn't, it, just, it doesn't matter why somebody chooses to do that stuff. It mattered how he was able to do that, how he was able to access 24 guns and, and get bump stocks and have such an easy access to AR-15s and AR-10s and and why he was able to position himself in the Mandalay Bay for four days in a comped room. And, and there's all these things that led up to the shooting that I think should have flagged it. And the shooting was preventable. Like there was no reason that 58 people had to die that night. And there was no reason that 22,000 people had to be shot at and survive with, you know, the tales of which we survive with today. So can you tell us why you opted to not be a part of the class action lawsuit against the Mandalay Bay? Yeah, absolutely. So we were actually approached by a couple law firms ahead of, like, afterwards. And we were given legal counsel here in Canada because in Canada, we have different laws, obviously, than the United States. So there is a different take for us to get involved in it on the what-if options of, A, if the contract that we sign with them doesn't warrant enough dollars and cents sometimes mm-hmm. because right off the top they take um 40 percent i think um on the your, lawyers do yeah the lawyers take 40 percent off right off, right off the top and of then the there's fees yeah. and your taxes and everything else that come off your settlement so like for example with the 800 million dollar lawsuit approximately there's 2,500 plaintiffs that come with that. So right off the top, the lawyers have already made $320 million. And then if you hypothetically evenly applied, uh, divided between the 2,500 plaintiffs, people were getting approximately $192,000, depending on what their injuries were. And then you have to subtract your additional fees on top of that. So for us, we were concerned that there could be um, a, a consequence that if my case personally wasn't worth enough on in the law of the court, if you know, if my mental injuries and my physical injuries were not bad enough, 
um, that's the easiest way of saying it, that the lawyer could turn around and sue us for the difference in what they did not make back versus how much money they spent on our case. Wow. Yeah. So that was alarming. And at that point, when we had been approached by them, I was just beginning to become less of a corpse. Um, After the shooting, I went into like really, really serious shock and PTSD where I was not capable of doing very much of anything. Um, I got deeply into activism, but like I kind of pushed off the grief part of that. But that's another side of the point. Back to the back to your original question. Sorry. No, no, it's that's an important piece of this because yeah. I wanted to say understandably. Yeah. So, <laughs> so we go through. The first point was um, we didn't know if there was if it went the other way, how much money it was going to cost us to be a part of a class action suit. And because we're Canadian, there was you know legal things and borders and international rules and all sorts of stuff that, you know, kind of went over top of my head, but it gave off a couple red flags for my parents. And they had talked to people that had been involved with U.S. class action suits as Canadians, mm. and they had been burned really badly. Cause, so it could have just extended the, the trauma and the stress and the, and the sort of... Absolutely. The, the, the PTSD. There's no yeah. real other way of putting no, this. That, that is the easiest way of saying it. Yeah, it's a cautionary it, tale, certainly. Brie, I have to ask you... Um, you're writing a book, are you not? I am, yes. And when, when can we expect to read that? Um, well, every day is really hard to get words out because I have to go back into my trauma. Yeah. Um, but I'm hoping to have it out within the next year. Um, my biggest hurdle right now is realizing that in the publishing game, if you don't have, you could have a really fantastic story, but if you don't have an agent, um, a lot of publishers don't want to look at you. So I'm currently looking for agents. Um, if anyone is listening. <laughs> if anybody is listening, I will read this book, as will so many others who are just enthralled with your story and your strength. Uh, Brie, I appreciate so much you taking some time and being so open and honest with this, uh, the story of your life that took a turn that no one really wants to ever imagine. Thank you so much for this. Not a worry. Thank you for having me on. It's nice to not be silenced. I am very glad to uh, share your voice with our listener. That's Bree Jacobson, the Vancouver Island resident who's survived the Las Vegas mass shooting, did not take part in the class action lawsuit, the civil suit that Mandalay Bay is settling between $735 and $800 million uh, to some of the survivors, uh, some 2,500 claimants. Um, certainly, if you're interested in being Bree Jacobson's uh, literary agent, just uh, contact the radio station. My email is jody at cknw.com and we'll put you in touch with her. Jody Vanson for Simi Sarah and joining me in studio is George Affleck, former Vancouver City Councillor, longtime City Councillor, and now uh, the head honcho of Curve Communications. <laughs> what do we call you? Sure, let's go with head, head honcho. honcho. I like it. <laughs> at George underscore Affleck on Twitter. A great follow on Twitter if you'd like to follow along because you still have a lot of views yes. on what happens. Can't it, control myself. I know, I love it. can't stop. Well, I, that's why I do Unspun <laughs> Podcast with you every week. We try and unspin the news of the mm. day, uh, whether it be municipal, provincial, sometimes federal, sometimes global. Uh, today, we're going very specific on City Council with you, George. Uh, this it, I know. It has been a little <laughs> bit um, unusual in council since the last municipal election, has it not? 
Yes, a year now we've had since the election, pretty pretty much another couple of weeks. Uh, it's been interesting because they got the city always would always say to us at council, we want to we want a mixed council. We don't want one party dominating, and which so, we had for so long. We had for so long with Vision Vancouver, and I had to battle that as the opposition. Uh, so now we have this mixed council. We have uh, forty five parties, and they're not all aligned, and they're all over the How's map. How's that working for us? <laughs> well, it's it's slower. Let's put it that way. There and there's a lot of motions that they bring. Each individual is bringing their own ideas to council at the end of each uh, in council you're allowed to bring ideas basically called motions and you put them on the floor uh, for debate and discussion and and then if it passes then staff or their job is to implement this this motion so on average they've been doing about 10 of these uh, every council meeting and before I, when I was there you maybe get two sometimes none um, so five times so as we've many. had over a hundred motions in the last year and that really is challenging I think for staff because it for city it, staff for city staff yeah. because it becomes a priority if, if if this is the direction of council then that becomes the direction of staff and so I believe staff are really like overwhelmed right now with all these ideas. Some are good, some are meh. Well, let's talk about some of the ideas that are top of mind and certainly headline-y. Let's go with one one of the topics that you and I have been talking about on Unspun Podcast for weeks and weeks and really for a year. You mm-hmm. started talking about Oppenheimer Park a year ago when you when the, year, yeah. when the tents started mm-hmm. sort of coming into play. You're like, that needs to be cleared out. That'll you get gotta, bigger. Yeah, you got to deal with it quickly. Otherwise, it uh, grows. And that's what happened. And then they remove them, the tents. Right. And Linda has had uh, John Cooper on mm-hmm. and uh, the Park Board Commissioner. Uh, McKinnon, McKinnon. McKinnon has mm-hmm. been on um, to talk Clearly about this. on opposite ends of the issue on that one. So what's happening in City Hall with regard to Oppenheimer? Well, there were two motions related to Oppenheimer. One from Gene Swanson, who's from COPE, uh, which was related to housing more, more specifically, and that they had to find housing and using hotels. Uh, and there was a motion uh, from Councillor Weeb and Councillor Domanato, two different parties, Green Party and MPA, related to... Uh, trying to find a way to decamp. They didn't use the word remove, decamp. decamp. It's sort of a nice way to say, you know, clear get, it out, clear it out, but not uh, not through any kind of legal means. Uh, so probably not very effective. Both motions, interestingly, were try they were called out of order by the mayor. Um, he succeeded uh, in the first one only, but and Jean Swanson tried what she did. She challenged the challenged the chair, challenged the mayor, saying that's is not out of order. And when you challenge the chair, then there has to be a majority of people who support your challenge. Challenge to then let it move forward. She lost that challenge because she wanted to have the hotel used as temporary housing yeah. that the city she wanted, would, yeah. which is what we've done that a couple yeah. times. Yeah, it failed. Uh, so the mayor's uh, out of order worked on that one, and then he tried to call Lisa and uh, and uh, Mike's motion out of order, and he did. They did not succeed in that, and so he, the mayor did not succeed in calling those out of order. So that motion, in effect, passed. And really, the motion is uh, strongly worded letters to other levels of government trying to find a way to decamp. Uh, the park, um, not particularly. I mean, it's fine. It's good to see the Green Party and NPA working together there because they're not working together at Park Board. But it, the, the motion wasn't as strong as what John Cooper's saying, which is let's get the legal process done and get move in and get these people out of here. That's not what's being said at council. So clearly this council is less strong, I think, on this issue than John Cooper at Park Board. So he's definitely, he and Trish uh, Barker are in a minority when you look across the board politically in Vancouver, which I think goes against the spirit of what people in Vancouver really feel. I think there's a majority, if you look at any polling, any, any even professional polls, you're seeing 70 to 80% of people are saying, Get these guys out of our park. Um, Even residents of the downtown east side now are being vocal. vocal. There was mm-hmm. one woman who spoke in City Hall 
um, during right. during that session, the uh, the public consultation session, or what, what do they call it? The openness, the, Open, the yeah, there's the, well, it's a public, yeah, it's a c- c- committee, com- yeah. committee, yes. Yeah. So they actually didn't find there. There are a lot of vocal people, and actually they didn't finish uh, Lisa and Mike's motion in the end because they had a speaker at the end who wouldn't stop talking, and they had security, and so they actually left the room, and the quorum was lost, and so they had to refer the actual vote until uh, the 23rd of October. So uh, it got a bit crazy in there uh, at council. You had a lot of the same people that we. Saw at Park Board who were there. These are what I think are, are professional uh, protesters. They This is what they do. They come to these city hall meetings, these park board meetings, and they make it a goal to change the, the direction of any issue that might be that focuses on their agenda or against their agenda or whatever. And they show up at all these meetings, even in Burnaby and other places, you see quite often the same people hmm. showing up, protesting uh, and speaking. And quite often it's related to homelessness. Um, and you wonder, wh- wh- you know, who, what is this about? Is there something else I don't understand going on? Uh, How this is being- going to actually help the most vulnerable exactly. people living in And should we be listening poverty. to these same people over and over again? Yeah. What is the will of the majority of people in Vancouver should be the goal generally of, of a council? Engaging people. Um, and I will get to ride hailing in a second, but because you're talking about, you know, activating and the voice of the people, let's go to Prior Street on this mm-hmm. one because with, with the viaducts coming down, Prior Street would be a main artery into the downtown core and the people who live along Prior Street have become very vocal uh, in the last bit, uh, what's yeah, happening this was with it, that? Well, and prior, so this is the, the viaducts coming down, which if that ever happens, right. uh, because who knows? Um, who knows? But that's the goal, and that's the, the strategy we put forward in my council. And part of that process, though, was to find a way to calm Prior Street. And, the, and we tasked staff when I was there to find an alternative route. Staff came back this week and said, uh, there is no there is no better route than prior. It really is the only route that we can do. How, so here's our plan, and their plan was basically calm parts of prior, uh, put a, a tunnel underneath, and have the train go over top. Um, and there was a lot of the most of the people speaking to against this plan uh, were uh, people who were actually more angry about the trains than anything else. It was interesting. And so you always wonder, I always, these issues of noise and in your neighborhood, when you move into a neighborhood and there was a train there, Strathcona has a train system in or almost all around it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's quite noisy. Um, and then the people who live there start protesting what they About knew was the there. About the train, yeah. Uh, so it was interesting. That was the main focus of a lot of the people there. Obviously calming prior. And there was people that were disappointed that we couldn't find a different route. Uh, but staff said, look, we can. this is the best route. Here's why. The money also will pay be from the federal government. From everybody will pay for this uh, this uh, tunnel, so we won't. The taxpayers of Vancouver won't be paying for this tunnel, um, and so in, in the end, st- uh, council voted in favor of this uh, this prior street uh, approach. We were with uh, George Affleck, former Vancouver City Councillor, uh, a co-host of Unspun Podcast, which you can find anywhere you get your podcast. podcast. The world's greatest podcast, but no, world's greatest follow on Twitter. Right, You're right up there with Keith Baldry for me, at George underscore Affleck. You must follow. Uh, opinions are his own, I uh, must add. <laughs> uh, but ride hailing, though. Oh, my goodness. The ride hailing, uh, things went uh, went a little bit viral on your Twitter this is our yeah. This so what is this? You know, this is yeah. actually our first. <sighs> is a good way of putting you know what it. This is, and people haven't really talked about this. This is our first intro into congestion tax. Uh, so this, the whole motivation of this new, the way Vancouver's decided, they have the the business license, which is hundred bucks. They've lowered the taxi business licenses to hundred bucks. That's fine. Hundred bucks have a business license. You run Fair. a business. There should be really a regional strategy to this, as has been talked about. We have a regional um, business um, uh, license Model. program yeah. that we could do, and I don't know why. 
why we're not on that one. Anyways, because these guys are going to be driving all over the place. Of course the, they are. The thing that Vancouver added was this 30 cent drop off, drop, pick up, drop off fee. Uh, that on top of the provincial government's regulation to have $3.50 or $0.75 minimum and their own fee on top the of that. The base ride fare. Now you're looking at, what, 5 bucks to get in an Uber yeah. or a Lyft or any shire? It's, that's a lot of money. I, I've taken Ubers in other cities where it's five, it's 4 bucks total. Total. So I'm a bit disappointed by that. On and what I, would have been a $25 cab ride. Yeah, totally. And <laughs> that you would never have ca- caught or found. Anyways, right. this, this is a congestion tax. This is the beginning of congestion tax in, in this region. Prepare yourself, Vancouver, and all of BC, congestion tax is coming and that's what this is. Because they're talking about, they're worried, their argument was they're worried about the number of Ubers, which I don't understand this argument. I know other cities have this, but Vancouver is actually a leader in ride sharing in general. Uh, they're saying that it's going to cause more traffic in our city. How is there no and more so traffic we have on to your, punish them. your Uber Eats doesn't cause congestion, but your Uber that you're actually in instead of the one going and getting your food causes congestion? I, I don't and understand And we already have that. a tax, it's called gasoline taxes. Yes. Why are we, yeah. it's just, it's a cash grab by the city. Okay, so my response to your tweet was, feels like a cash grab it's to me. It's 100% cash and grab. And then you retweeted, I was like, oh, hey, George cash actually grab. agrees with me on something. That's <laughs> so, no, it's so cool. Um, another thing I want to get into with you, and I want to open up phone lines on this one, because Sarah Kirby Young put forward uh, a motion, I believe, uh, very specifically, that it's time to clean up the city of Vancouver. You know, we're, we're doing all of these sparkly things, like let's, how about a bike lane and a elevated walking path down the center of the Granville Street Bridge? Hello, our sidewalks are crumbling. Yes. Our garbage cans are overflowing. Yes. We, I, I, seriously, the city is Dirty. It used to be clean. Uh, so I want to open that up to you, the listener. What's your biggest gripe with Vancouver right now? Would you like to see something done to clean up the city? I mean, one need only go down te- downtown east side to see how that is troubling. Oh, you but, can go to Yaletown to see what about Granville? Too. You can yeah. see it everywhere. It is it is blossoming and blooming in a way that is very sad for a city that is so green and so lovely and so Pacific Northwest. 604-280-9898 star 9898 on your cell phone hands free. You can call our buzz line as well if you're a little shy. 604-331-BUZZ 331-2899 but call us up if you want to talk to George and I about your biggest gripe with Vancouver right now. What would you like to see done to clean up the cities? And we've opened up the phone line 604-280-9898 or star 9898 on your cell asking the question, what's your biggest gripe with Vancouver right now? Would you like to see something done to clean up the city? And George, in the break, you were saying that there's actually a legit reason why we're seeing sort yes. of... Yes, in 2008, during the crash, the Envision was just elected in 2009, 2008, 2009, they cut the budget, of the streets budget, by 30% to find money because they were worried that uh, the economy was crashing, they needed to start saving, legitimate arguments there, but they cut that budget by 30%. Then things didn't go as badly as we thought in Vancouver, but they never brought that 30% back it, until it took about seven years before we finally got back to 2008 levels on spending on streets, on, on keeping our streets clean, keeping the sidewalks fixed. Uh, and so they really reduced that maintenance program But what a significant is city amount. government doing if not keeping streets and it's sidewalks fixed and it's clean? It's basics. It's what I, it's my mantra for seven years. Oh, I'm basics, basics, basics. Let's take some calls here. 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. Blake in the West End, welcome to the program. Welcome. Well, I'll tell you, from Old Navy on Granville to Davy Street, it's a horrible, dirty, slimy, dark-lit area. I don't know one 
they don't have the lights turned up to, say, 100 watts like it used to be way back when. It's an entertainment thing. I came uh, walking through there 3 o'clock this morning from volunteering. Needles on the street. Now, I realize there's lots of God's special people camped out, and you can't be looking after them. But the garbage and that, why not turn the lights up? And also, like you say, you trip over um, areas of the sidewalk that aren't smooth, and that seems to be all over the West End, except I notice Robson Street seems to be kept up. Interesting. Thank you very much, Blake. They have improved Robson Street and added bigger garbage cans. Uh, One of the things with Granville Street, and I brought two motions forward in my time in in office to try and deal with Granville Street. They both uh, didn't succeed uh, because of uh, Vision Vancouver. Uh, But uh, he's got some good points there in lighting and some things like music, but cleaning. The city relies on the DVBI, the Business Association, to take care of Granville more than they should. And they rely Mm. on a lot of these business associations to take care of cleanliness more More than than they they really should. And Granville's a perfect example of that. I want to get to Carrie. Carrie, uh, welcome to the show. What do you think on this? Uh, I just wanted to share. I just actually drove into Vancouver. I very rarely go into Vancouver, but um, the garbage. But the smell of urine in the laneways is absolutely beyond disgusting. And it is just unbelievable that it allows... uh, Every time I go into Vancouver, I have to walk down a laneway, and it's just overpowering. And I just, I just don't understand why that is something that is not cleaned up regularly. That's the health issue. Yeah, you make a good point, Carrie. Thank you. You're nodding your head, George. Again, it comes down to budgeting and staff allocation. And, you know, instead of having 43 communication staff uh, at at City (laughs) Hall, maybe some of those, uh, we could put more staff on cleaning up our city. I want to squeeze in another call here. Uh, Terry in Kitsilano, welcome to the show. Oh, hi. Hi. Um, Yeah, a lot of people don't know this, but Directions Youth Services, it's for homeless people 24 and under. Hi, can you hear me okay? Yes, we can. We're listening. Oh, yes. Uh, a lot of people don't know this, but Directions Youth Services downtown, it's for homeless people 24 and under. They have a program Monday to Fridays, and they pick up garbage every single day, and they pay them a small a small amount of money. It is a huge success. You see them out there with their little vests on. Right. It teaches them what, what work skills. They do an incredible job. And it's not city workers out there. It's them doing it. And a lot of people don't know that. Directions yeah. Youth Services, Thank you, Terry. Lots of uh, nonprofits funded by the city to take care of garbage in our city. But at the end of the day, the uh, you need, you need city, city workers with a plan and a process and a predictable way of cleaning up our city every day. When the sidewalk breaks, don't put a bunch of crappy uh, fill in there. Fix the sidewalks. Take the concrete up. Put new concrete in. Personal don't do these story, temporary fixes. We have our, our block in Kitsilano had a huge dip and crack in our sidewalk. And then another that yearly is one massive puddle and it's near a school. So people have to go around on the street for six months of the year. They came in and fixed only the big crack and stopped. They had three more feet to do and didn't. Is that bureaucracy at play here? Yeah, it's hard to say specifically, but I would say that, again, it comes down to priorities and budgeting and saying to the, to the transportation department uh, who really are in charge of this, Let's especially sidewalks, done. you guys prioritize this. Yeah. And that's kind of what Sarah was trying to do with her motion. This has to be a priority. This is about safety. It's about beauty. It's about Accessibility. You know, accessibility. It's all uh, of those it's, things. So it's an important thing. And I think 
They, it did pass. So. Good. Sarah Kirby Young, congratulations on bringing that forward. George Affleck, always a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, I will see you in a couple hours yeah. to record Unspun Podcast, which you can hear at the orca.ca or wherever you uh, download your podcasts or on YouTube. Uh, former Vancouver City Councilor, always available to give his opinion. Lots of people talking about uh, sort of harrowing... Uh, cycle up on the North Shore Mountains. Uh, Brad Martin joins us on the line. Can you tell us your tale about being chased by a black bear on a Seymour Trail? Hey, yeah, it was um, last Friday. We decided to do another lap and we're trying out uh, a new trail to us. We haven't ridden before. It's called TNT. And as we're sitting at the top of the trail ready to uh, get into the trail, we noticed down the old logging road about 300 feet down that there was a bear walking towards us. And one of my friends is like, well, you think we should go? And I was like, yeah, maybe we should go. So one of them drops in, then we look back and we notice the distance is at least half the distance or more. And he's, he's running at us. And we're like, Oh, let's go. (laughs) So we all, we all took off running down there and we didn't really expect him to uh, chase us at all. We thought he'd, we'd look back and he'd just be sitting on the road and to our surprise, when we looked back for the first time, he was actually running down the trail towards us still. And we're like, and that's when we're like, oh, oh, like we got to move. So we kept on gro- going. And then uh, a few times in the video, you can see that we, my friend looked back and then he seen him right behind us again. And I looked back once and I didn't see him. And so I thought I lost him. And then we got to the bottom where we actually stopped at the bottom of the rock face and uh, confronted him. And as I came down the rock face, they stopped, and it was maybe like seven, eight seconds. And then I looked at, I looked up, I didn't see him. I looked back at my friend's faces, and I could see their face like, oh, crap, there he is. And he walks around the corner. Wow. And sure enough, he was following us the whole time. And then we had to confront him. We held our bikes up above our heads, uh, yelled at him, threw some rocks to scare him. So clearly you've listened to the Simi Sarah show before, because I hear Simi say that all the time whenever she has someone on to speak about whether it's a, a mountain lion problem or a bear problem. It's make yourself big, make yourself look scary, because you, your instinct, my instinct would be ride my bike as fast as I can in the opposite <laughs> direction. Yeah, and um, well, that's what we didn't really expect him to chase us. We didn't think he would, so that's why we, we took off. And like the majority of the time, like you keep your distance from wild animals and if we knew he was going to chase us that far, we might have confronted him earlier, but that's the thing with wild animals. You don't know. We just thought we'd just leave him in the dust and we'd never see him again, but then he kept on coming. And then we it got to the point at that little rock face there where we had to confront him. And uh, he backed off a bit, and then he went in the bush, and he looped around, and he continued to uh, follow us for a little bit more, but not too long after that. Interesting though, Brad, because most of us who are you know born and raised around the mountains, we're, we're used to sort of a black bear encounter being one that you think, okay, well, they're probably less interested in you than you are in just saying, oh, yeah. hey, look at the bear. But this one seemed to be <laughs> very motivated. Yeah, um, unsure why. Maybe it's, I know it's fall time, so they're trying to fatten up for hibernating and stuff. And Maybe he's used to being around people and maybe some people did leave some food or he disassociates food with people. Who mm. knows? I'm not not 100% sure. <laughs> Certainly not afraid of people, though. No, no, exactly. Yeah, it was, it was a good one. I ran into lots of bears before. I lived in Squamish for 12 years or more up uh, around Whistler and stuff. So I've ran into lots of black bears. I've ran into 
a grizzly bear and a cougar before, and they just get a, a scent of your scent, and then they just take off. So this was kind of surprising. This was very unusual, but good for you for knowing what to do. And and you can see the video that Brad referenced here uh, at cknw.com. We have it up on our website. Um, but did did all of your fellow mountain bikers have, uh, were you all on the same page when you said, okay, let's just hold our bikes up above our heads and become as big as we possibly can? Yeah, um, it was actually my friend that was beside me, Travis, beside me. He's like, yeah, we got to make ourselves look big. big. And then uh, we all did it right away. <laughs> it's and, the lesson. Uh, That's the lesson when if, yeah. if going uh, into any any trail on the North Shore is considered the backcountry anywhere else in the world. Like we really need to be aware of that. So it was the TNT trail that you were on on Mount Seymour? Yep. And that bear's still probably milling about there. So uh Hold your bikes up in the air, shout, line up across the trail, make yourselves look big. That would be the uh, the lesson from you and your crew, right, Brad? Yep, and take some bear spray or some bear bangers. <laughs> That'd be good as well. Also a very good tip. Hey, thanks for this. <laughs> no problem. Thank you. So I found uh, a column in the North Shore News, trust the North Shore News to be on top of this. Brent Richter writes uh, about this and it really gives a warning. The North Shore Mountain Bike Association warns people to avoid the trails in the Seymour area. In the last hour, we spoke to Bree Jacobson. If you don't know the name, you'd probably remember why she became uh Widely known around British Columbia, certainly. She's the Vancouver Island woman who survived the Las Vegas mass shooting two years ago. And now, while the owner of Mandalay Bay, where America's deadliest shooting um, was took place, it they're actually settling up to 2,500 lawsuits, 735 to $800 million worth being paid out. Now, Bree Jacobson is not one of those taking part in this legal action. She opted to not. And I've posted on my Twitter feed my conversation with Bree, and she explains exactly why she, as a Canadian, was not part of the class action lawsuit. It is very complex and could have found her owing legal fees to U.S. lawyers if it all shook out. In, in, in one of many ways, she had been she had been forewarned not to take part, and she's healing in different ways. So, another reason, as part of her not taking part in the class action lawsuit, was actually she did not want to sign a non disclosure agreement. She wanted to be free to speak about her experience, uh, about her therapy and her healing, and that got us to thinking in the newsroom about non disclosure agreements or NDAs. They're very catchphrase. Uh, words in this Me Too era. Um, we started hearing a lot about them when people started to step forward about having been perhaps the vic- victim of sexual harassment or inappropriate um, business dealings. Uh, oftentimes a payout comes with a non-disclosure agreement that kind of buttons things up. So we wanted to talk about whether or not non-disclosure agreements were something that pay- perhaps should go the way of the dodo bird when not protecting sort of creative license or you know the ending to infinity war or end game, right? You understand an NDA when you're talking about a movie that's coming out. But 
when it's your life, when it's your lived experience. So we wanted to talk about these agreements in a more general term now. So many of us are asked to sign them from time to time, but should you sign them? And do you have any recourse down the line if you have regrets about having signed one? So we reached out to trial lawyer and arbitrator based in Vancouver, Georgia Lee Lang, who joins us on the line now. Georgia Lee, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Jody. What is your take on NDAs in 2019? Well, they're very common, of course, and they are simply contracts, um, and they're give and take. Uh, you usually get something from the party that asks you to sign the non-disclosure agreement, and in exchange for that, you agree not to discuss certain aspects of the situation uh, between you and the party that's asking for the NDA. So they're used um, in, in employment situations. They're used when a company is selling its assets uh, and is giving financial information to a prospective purchaser and doesn't want the financial information um, dispersed. Uh, they will sign them. Uh, personal services contracts are quite common where a, uh, a well-known or a notable person or a celebrity will have people working in their home who may be privy to confidential information. Uh, you know, celebrities in Hollywood often have non-disclosure agreements. So they're very common and they are simply contracts uh, and they're binding as contracts. So they are enforceable. And that was one of the discussions that we were having in the newsroom. It's like if somebody um, has an inappropriate exchange in this Me Too era, let's say it's a celebrity with uh, someone who turns around and says, you know, this is a Me Too situation. And they say, I don't want that kind of noise. Here's $25,000 sign here. If, if that person who was wronged, who accepted the $25,000 down the line decides, you know what? I've seen that celebrity do it since then, and I feel that that is wrong. I should have stepped forward. What is the repercussion for the individual who signed the NDA? Should they disclose what happened to them publicly? Well, there are significant repercussions, and we have an example. Uh, If you look south, you may recall that Stormy Daniels uh, was paid, allegedly paid a certain amount of money uh, for having an affair with uh, with President Trump. Right. And she received funds, I think it was about $130,000. She signed um, an NDA, um, and uh, she was uh, suggesting that she was going to breach that. She did not. Uh, because she understood what the ramifications are. And, of course, the NDA itself can set out what what some of those consequences are uh, for a breach. And she had um, legal counsel. You may remember the infamous Michael Avanti. Avenatti, uh, yes. Avenatti, yeah. yes. yes. Right, thank you. Avenatti, uh, who obviously gave her good legal advice because she didn't do She declined to uh, to breach that contract. So uh, they, they are uh, used regularly, and they are, as I said, they're enforceable. Uh, but you don't need to sign one. Um, and, for example, the woman on Vancouver Island who doesn't want to pursue this class action that has now apparently settled in Las Vegas, that's her That's her right. Uh, you know, if she doesn't want to sign one, that's fine. She then is not bound by any any agreements uh, or, or any consequences. However, uh, it, it seems to me that by asking the... Uh, the recipients of this money to sign an NDA, obviously there's going to be, they're going to be releasing confidential information to them, uh, because we know the public information can't be the subject of an NDA. It's already out there in all the media. Uh, and so she won't be privy to that confidential information if she doesn't sign the agreement. So in this day and age, if you have somebody slide an NDA and a check in front of you, 
legal advice is probably a good idea prior to signing? Well, absolutely. With any contract, uh, if you don't get legal advice, then the contract, there could be a suggestion down the road that the uh, there was some uh, unequal bargaining power or the contract is not fair, is unconscionable, is a term in law. So there's a numbers, number of ways to get out of a contract, uh, and I would think that the person offering the NDA would insist that the person signing it got independent legal advice. And with the era of Me Too and someone who has signed an NDA, would if they were to come forward, would it just be the check, the dollar figure that they accepted in exchange for their silence, or would could it be greater than that? Oh, it could be much greater than that. I mean, it depends on the contents of the NDA, right. uh, but there could be penalties uh, included in the NDA uh, and uh, damage awards, so it could be pretty significant. And uh, often you'll you'll hear people in the media say, "Well, I signed a, a non-disclosure agreement, but I'm going to, um, you know, I'm going to speak out," and in some, you know, then. Coincidentally, they don't speak out when they realize, uh, you know, the sacrifice they're going to have to make uh, personally and financially if they do that. Right. The ramifications and consequences are significant. Georgia Lee Lang, thank you for this. Thank you very much, Jody. Georgia Lee Lang is a trial lawyer and arbitrator based here in Vancouver talking non-disclosure agreements. Check in with us and talk about BC Teachers Federation negotiations with the province, trying to get a deal done. Will it be a rollover deal? Oh, Keith is with us now. Uh, welcome to the show, Keith. I'm, I call on you daily when I'm filling in here. <laughs> Always a pleasure to be here, Jody. Well, we talked Massey Tunnel and whatnot yesterday. Uh, today, it's BC Teachers. I saw your tweet move yesterday uh, just as I was getting off the air and I was thinking, Oh, my goodness. Yes. Uh, so the background here is I got my hands on a, a, a posting on the BC Public School Employers Association website uh, from the board chair there uh, saying they've asked the mediator to write a, a, a report, which can be done on the Labor Relations Code. It, it is a, a technical maneuver. It does indicate the two sides are far apart, but it also disclosed for the first time that they had offered the BCTF a three-year uh, rollover contract, no concessions, with 6% wage increase over three years. And that was then taken down after I tweeted it. Uh, and I think because of the, the concern that they this sort of inflamed the situation, because the TF went a little crazy on Twitter saying this is breaking the rules. There's supposed to be a blackout. You're not supposed to be telling anybody this type of thing. But it also had teachers saying, you know, wait a minute, uh, three years, no concession, 6%. Maybe that's something to, to take a look at. So I think it's what it's done is it's reignited the talk that had been very quiet. These guys had disappeared from the scenes for a while because they're in mediation and, you know, it was sort of a media blackout. But this has rekindled the, the emotions that are attached to this contract dispute. But it also, uh, another indication, how difficult it's going to be to solve because, as the employer pointed out, the 2-2-2 two, two, and two is the wage mandate, the negotiating mandate all other unions have agreed to, and they can't make an exception for the BCTF. There can be a, sort of a, a few changes around the edges of this. You know, you can change the salary grid and that type of thing. Uh, you, you can actually add a quarter of a percent if you meet certain conditions with some give and take, but the TF isn't there yet, and it's, a, again, more indication that this thing is going to be very hard to resolve. Now, you've been talking 2-2-2 two, two, and, two, and how that that is the standard uh, public sector union deal that in this province. And, and if the teachers were given more than that, that would open up the option for those other public sector unions to enact the Me Too clause and reopen their negotiations, which would re- literally reopen a can of worms in this province. Mm-hmm. But talk about that reworking of the salary grid. Can well, you explain that a little bit for us? Yeah, I mean, there's every a lot of workplaces have different steps and categories you take as you move up the ladder. 
uh, in terms of uh, of your pay. And some of the changes that can be made, you can change the, the starting pay. I know that's been a big uh, bone of contention or concern for teachers, that you've got to be able to pay teachers enough to attract them and retain them, particularly young teachers, because the cost of living is so high. So you could change the salary grid to reflect that, to boost uh, one group of teachers' pay higher, but you may not apply the, the increase uh, to the, some of the other categories in quite the same way. It has to net out at two, two, and two. Uh, the overall um, you know, cost has to net out, but you can change it within the two, two, and two, so some would get three, some would get one and a half, that type of thing. And that's, that's what's been, I think that's actually been talked about at the table, but they're nowhere near agreeing on something like that, but it has to net out at two, two, and two. And so far, the, the TF rejects that, uh, as they've done in previous contract rounds, the argument that they should be treated differently than other unions because they're in a different situation. But that, that held no water in the past, and it shows no signs of holding water with the NDP government, because Carol James has been frank, if you start increasing the pay packet to the teachers beyond two, two, and two, that kicks in a lot of Me Too clauses in all of the other contracts, and what could be, you think would be a small amount of money to the teachers suddenly becomes a big amount of money uh, because other unions would get it. And this comes at a time when Carol James is, wor- is warning of an economic slowdown. Mm-hmm. She's already uh, 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 cutting, the dis- belt. Yeah, cutting discretionary spending, yeah. and it's going to get worse, and that means there's even less money to pay out, and that makes it harder for the TF to make this argument. So you've been sleuthing this, investigating this, as you do. Um, do you have any idea of what would satisfy the BCTF with regard to this negotiation, knowing that the 2-2-2 two, two, and two has to be in play? I think it would be a major revision of the salary grid. I think there would have to be all sorts of other little things, and then this could actually go beyond the 2-2-2. Two, two two. If there were other funds created to hire more specialist teachers, if there was more, I mean, the hiring of more teachers does not violate the 2-2-2 two, two and two, um, uh, negotiating It's uh, how mandate. much you can pay each teacher. That's right. right. And, it, it's, uh, and the NDP's already, you know, uh, got the money there. They've increased the money to hire more teachers already. So, But the TF has always, again, asked for stuff that other unions don't ask for, because they you go on Twitter and they make the argument we're the lowest paid in Canada, therefore we should get, you know, a, a 10%, 12% uh, wage increase. And that's just out so far beyond the reality of, of what's going on here in terms of the political reality that it's not even in the conversation. But I know talking to the negotiators over there on the other side, they have a hard time getting the TF into the political reality of the current day situation. And that's why it makes it so hard for negotiations to actually occur. Keep in mind, they're not at the table with the employer. They're right. talking to a mediator. And the mediator now is going to write a report. And the interesting thing, Jody, under the Labor Relations Code, I looked it up, he has the ability to recommend terms of settlement. And I wouldn't be surprised if he comes back and recommends the two, two, and two, perhaps a little extras around the end, around the edges to, to recognize the uniqueness of the teaching profession and makes that the recommendation, which I think the NDP would, could live with, but the TF would probably turn it down. And I think he'd be you know, starting to get a little closer to some work stoppages, if not an outright uh, walkout next spring. We're not there yet. I don't want to get right, people but, alarmed. But, but you're keeping that at the, you know, if, if this continues to spiral, yep. as I mean, we have seen it, we were hopeful. I, I'm, I'm pointing to myself because I have an 11-year-old. <laughs> I got skin in this game. It's in a, in a public school. So, and I've gone through that work stoppage. I, and I feel for the teachers in the sense that there was that massive feeling of setback then. Mm-hmm. The, the salaries lost, the, the loss of teachers, like they scattered. They, yep. 
you know, we, we're in a shortage situation that it has not re- been recovered from. And here we are. Th- back then was the Liberal uh, provincial gover- government. And here we are with the NDP provincial government. And it's a very similar sort of acrimony between the two sides. Yes, and I think that caught the TF off guard. They thought the, TF, the, the NDP was just going to roll over and give them everything they wanted. And Carol James and the rest of the NDP are mindful that there's a political reality here. There's also an economic reality. Yeah. They, they set the mandate at 2-2-2, two, two two, which exceeds most prior private sector settlements, by the way, um, and and making everybody stick to it. And it's been that way for decades. And the TF in every contract round has made the argument they should be treated differently than all the other employees in, in the public sector. It's never worked in the past. And I don't see any prospect of working this time. I don't know any teacher who wants to go on strike. No. Uh, not, not a single one. They A lot of them took a financial bath in the last time they went on strike because they began in June and carried right through the summer into September. It was a, a lot of paychecks were lost. And yeah. you never recover from that. I, I've been on strike in the, twice. And you don't recover from a strike unless you think it's going to be you – don't, you don't recover financially in terms of your pay because you're never going to regain it. The only thing you can hope for is maybe a change in working conditions. But the BCTF won that court case, and that meant the language is back in the contract. So they've already won a fair degree on this with the NDP government in place, but it, I'm, I'm not hopeful we're going to see a negotiated settlement anytime soon. I think that when the TF won that um, court case, everybody thought that this would be much easier. I guess no. No, probably again, I've gone through the court language, the, the contract language. This is language that dates from the late 1990s. Uh, yeah. The employer argues this is this is 20-year-old language. It doesn't work anymore, and that's it has to reflect sort of the new makeup of the classroom and the curriculum, but that's not an argument that the the TF wants to have. They take the view that, uh, they seem to take the view that this language is there in perpetuity and the employers say, no, it's there to be bargained, but so far, not much bargaining is going on. Oh, you're going to have to keep us posted. Keith, thank you for the update. Okay, take care. Keith Baldry, Global News Legislative Bureau Chief in Victoria and the best follow on Twitter at Keith Baldry. Trust me. I'm Jody Vanson for Simi Today, joined by Simi Sarah Show contributor Claire Allen. Always good to see you, Claire. Hello, Jody. What are you bringing to the table today? So I have a very interesting story that's made a lot of uh, international headlines, actually. And it uh, has to do with a case of human intervention into wildlife. So I wanted to start off by asking you, how do you feel about humans sort of intervening or doing stuff to sort of mess with maybe the cycle of life or with wildlife. How do you feel about that? I'm of two minds. Mm -hmm. I I love to go to the rifle bird sanctuary Mm -hmm. and then I I bring the appropriate bird feed. I'm at the sanctuary. You feed the the geese and the ducks and and you walk through knowing that this is a sanctuary. Mm -hmm. But when I'm sitting like on a seawall and I see people tossing bread, I like Granville Island tossing bread at seagulls and I'm like, Birds don't eat bread. Yeah. You know, so I'm of two minds. You have to you have to know what you're doing. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm not a swim with dolphins. I'm not a ride the elephant. Mm-hmm. Um, but this story um, about the the grizzly bears here, I, I understand why they're getting international news. Yes. Yeah, so this story is about some grizzly bears, and uh, as you know, the grizzly bears are they big business for BC because we have a lot of ecotourism, people who want to come and see the grizzly bears. And uh, they are just majestic creatures that can grow to be very, very large, almost 600 pounds. And they attract a lot of visitors to certain parts of our province. Now, the individual I want to introduce you to, his name is Ernest Alfred, and he is with Swanson Occupation, which is an organization that's working to have open net pens removed from the waters. And he lives in Alert Bay, which uh, borders the uh, Broughton Archipelago Provincial Park. And this area is known for its wildlife, 
orcas, eagles, wolves, and of course, grizzly bears. So as we said, as I mentioned, the presence of the grizzly bears in these areas attract a lot of tourists. But recently, Alfred and other people in the area have noticed something very disturbing was happening to the bears. The story really got a lot of attention with the photos taken and put online of emaciated grizzly bears within uh, the Night Inlet area. And uh, this place is frequented by tourists from all over the world who come and they take a look at uh, grizzly bears. Uh, It's a thriving industry. And um, over the last couple of years, um, alarm bells have been ringing because we see these bears spending more and more time searching for food rather than uh, actually catching it and participate in other social activities. It's pretty scary. Yeah, it's very scary because the pictures are very alarming because the average grizzly bear, depending on the gender of the bear, could weigh between 250 pounds to almost 600 pounds for a full-grown male. And in these pictures, the bears are extremely emaciated. No one has taken a guess at how much they weigh, but the bones are actually visible on the bears and the cubs. Not used to seeing rib cages on grizzly bears. Exactly. And so these pictures, which were um, captured by photographer uh, Rolf Hicker, show that these bears, they show the bears being extremely underweight. And I asked Alfred what he and other environmental stewards attribute uh, the emaciated bears to. Well, we know the problem, and we've been speaking about this for, like I say, the better part of 10 years, where we've been calling and screaming up and down because we're, we're seeing less and less salmon uh, returning to the, their rivers here. These bears should be bulked right up, and unfortunately, we don't, we don't see that. And the real story behind these bears is the lack of food that they have. And there are many different threats that face the wild salmon here on the coast. There's lots of different threats. There's lots of problems with the salmon and, you know, their demise, their collapse. But uh, one of the main reasons why we are so concerned is because of the open net pen fish farm industry here in our territory, which is an incredible, incredible threat to wild salmon. So that's something we've heard before, right? That open net uh, fish farms are a threat to wild salmon. And what Alfred is saying is that he and other environmental stewards believe that the diseases and the sea lice attributed to farmed salmon have contributed to the depletion of wild salmon stocks, which therefore result in the grizzly bears not having enough to eat, which is very dangerous as these bears are heading into hibernation. And if they don't have enough food, they possibly will not be able to survive. Now, we should mention that there are other things that contribute to the depletion of salmon stocks. Um, they have We've had um, notices from our government saying that the climate is warming, etc. So there are other things, but Alfred and um, some of the other people in his group attribute this mainly to the open, uh, pen, fish open farms. pen fish farms. Exactly. So this is where all the attention came from because we've heard these stories before about open uh, pen fish farms and how they're impacting the salmon. But this is where the international attention has come, not only because of the pictures of the bears, but but what because what people wanted to do to help them, to help the bears. So Alfred told me that he was approached by a hereditary chief from the Mamalilakala First Nations, and they said, we need to do something to help these starving bears that are in the night inlet. And the chief decided that it was time for them to take action and not just sort of watch as these bears possibly starve to death. 
And so what they did is they arranged for 500 pink salmon that were donated by a fishery society to be distributed along the shorelines that the grizzlies frequent. So uh, Alfred was there to distribute the fish, and he tells me what happened next. So we brought those that 500 uh, pink salmon to, to shore and left it there in the estuary. And within a very short period of time, the, the bears had moved in. And to me, it looked like, like, a, like a dog that, you know, hasn't eaten properly in a couple of days or so. Or a seagull, which just swallows their food. They don't even taste it. And that, to me, was so sad. And to watch these little cubs starving right in front of our eyes. Uh, this has been going on. This has been a problem, you know, for a number of years, like I say. The tourism guides have been saying, you know, they watch these bears from a distance for a long period of time, sometimes up to an hour, and these bears are just staring into the river, waiting and waiting, waiting for these fish to show up, and they're not. What a sad story this is. I know, it is very sad. The the image of the bears starving and, like, swallowing the food because they're so hungry is, is heartbreaking, and this action of bringing 500 pink salmon to the shorelines for these bears is unprecedented. However, their actions caught the attention of the government. And Alfred told me that they received messages, uh, received a message rather from the Department of Fisheries and Oceans. Well, the DFO and their infinite wisdom has shut that down and will not allow us to bring fish from which was donated from a a hatchery near Campbell River, uh, will not allow us to do that again. In understanding, you know, in understanding, we, we don't want to create a relationship with grizzly bears. But I'm, I'm concerned because now they're stepping in and they're prohibiting things like this. So these extreme measures that, in my opinion, are now inevitable. The Department of Fisheries and Oceans is, is trying to create uh, a, a scenario where they're promoting farmed Atlantic salmon as opposed to being stewards for the for the wild salmon that are supposed to be coming back in thousands and thousands and thousands of numbers. What's the answer? Yeah, so I mean, it, it is a tricky one because I think that when you originally hear, oh, people are bringing food to the shore for grizzly bears, you're thinking, maybe this isn't great because... Don't gri- feed the bears exactly. is the chance. There's a risk they could become yeah. habituated, right? Yeah. And so that's not great. We want them to exist without human intervention. Right. Teach a bear to fish. Don't give the bear a fish. Exactly. Right. But what if there is no fish, Jody? Exactly. That's- Having them stare at the shoreline waiting for a salmon to come by and starving is yes. something that we've... Unprecedented. Exactly. Yeah. And so... You know, I, as we just discussed here, there's some criticism for the for the actions that Alfred and his other environmental stewards took because people do feel like the bears could become habituated and maybe they're creating a bigger problem. So I asked Alfred what he would say to that criticism. I would say to people with that have uh, negative feedback for what we did was to get involved. People need to understand that our government is is uh, negligent. And I believe that the powers at, at B are, are fully aware of the issues. The cl- climate crisis that we're facing now, we need to demand more, especially going into this election uh, campaign, and, and we're going to be taken to the polls very soon. Ask your MPs and get involved, because we can't just sit back. We can't just sit back and let our ecosystem collapse like this. And at, at the end of the day, ladies and gentlemen, this is our territory. 
and that uh, everybody sitting behind a computer should uh, address their concern to their MP, their member of parliament, or their uh, local representative in Ottawa, because uh, we need to really act quickly. If people really care about the bears and the, the wolves and the orca and, and everything that's connected to them, including us, uh, we really need to act quickly before, uh, before it's too late. This is fascinating on so many levels, because in my mind, I, I, when, when people are critical of this highly unique scenario, mm-hmm. what's plan B? If you're going to be critical, come with a different solution, because yes. we're watching the Southern Resident Killer Whale, the, you know, the J-Pod's dying. Mm-hmm. Um, it, we're shutting down commercial fishing uh, on North Vancouver Island because trying to protect salmon stocks. These yeah. bears are emaciated, and nowhere in there is a true plan. Right. And I think that's what Alfred and um, other people that he's working with are looking for. They're looking for a plan. And so far, what they've heard from the DFO is uh, stop feeding the bears, essentially. And so now they're just going to continue to monitor the situation and see what happens with these bears. But, you know, hibernation is coming. Yeah. If these bears don't have enough to eat... That could wipe out an entire family of bears because it's a it's a there are some cubs that are emaciated uh, in the in the photos, and that's not great. What does this that mean for the future of generations? Grizzly? Exactly, generations, and also it affects our uh, economy as well because if these bears are not here, then ecotourism Tourism. goes down, and it's just it's a very interesting situation where I think when you think about human intervention into wildlife, you may think it's not right. But this is a unique situation that I think we all need to pay attention to. And hopefully we'll get some answers from the government soon. I love that you've brought this story to light with so much detail, Claire. Thank you for this. It is making international news. If you have an opinion on this, 604-331-BUZZ, 604-331-2899.